important. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me once more to this passage of Scripture, Revelation chapter 19. And in a moment, I'll read from verse 11 through the end of chapter 19. Like many of you, I love those stories of conquest. I love reading, watching movies that deal with some form of epic conquest where against great odds, good overcomes evil. Now, among such stories are the writings of J.R.R. Tolkien in his anthology known as The Lord of the Rings. I found out just a couple weeks ago that Jonathan Goodman and I share a common interest here. If you'll allow me to indulge my inner geek for just a moment. Just this last week, he allowed me to borrow the DVD set of Peter Jackson's movies based on Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. And uh, I found out this set of movies is the extended cut, the director's cut, which includes almost an hour and a half of extra footage over those three movies that was cut from the theatrical release. Now, uh, if you allow me to indulge myself for just a moment, if you're familiar with the story, the epic story of the Lord of the Rings, you know that it involves an unlikely band of heroes who set out on a journey to destroy a ring of power that belongs to an evil, foreboding dark lord named Sauron. Now, while the story is, it's not Christian allegory, it's, it's not like Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, but it is filled with a wealth of Christian symbolism, as Tolkien himself would later attest to. Well, the last book in the series is called The Return of the King. And when the ring of power is finally destroyed through the selfless heroism of Frodo Baggins, the evil dark lord Sauron is defeated, and Aragorn, the true king of men, is crowned with much praise and exaltation. And his coronation signals the long-anticipated restoration of the kingdom of men, and thereby signals or really begins this time of unparalleled peace on earth. Now, there's something about those kinds of stories where good triumphs over evil, even against such great odds, that resonates or strikes a chord with the human heart. We love seeing the outcome where good overcomes evil. Now, during that series of books, it looks like evil is going to win the day. How is it that evil is going to be defeated when it seems to be so overwhelmingly against the small band of heroes who were outgunned, outmanned, outpowered, outmaneuvered? Well, in many ways, the book of Revelation is a story of epic conquest. It's the ultimate conquest of good versus evil and it describes the victory of God over the forces of evil. In a very real sense, our world is under the grip of an evil overlord. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says that the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they can't see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ. 1 John 3.8 says that the reason the Son of God appeared the first time was to destroy the works of the devil. Well, how did he do that? 
The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 9 that he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it was appointed unto men to die once, and after this the judgment, even so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. And to those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. So Jesus Christ has appeared to defeat, to destroy the works of the devil. And the reason that he comes the first time is to suffer. But folks, that's not why he's coming the second time. He's not coming as the suffering servant. The second time that he comes, he's coming as the sovereign king of kings and lord of lords. And when the king returns, it will be lights out once and for all for those forces of darkness. So read with me Revelation chapter 19, verse number 11. John writes and says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image." These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Now, that's graphic language, a very vivid scene that's described here as the second coming of Jesus Christ. When it takes place, there will be judgment upon Antichrist and on his unbelieving forces who try to mount one final rebellion against the Lord, but that's not going to turn out very well for them according to what this passage of Scripture teaches. And so I want to speak for a second time from this subject, the return of the king. Now, I introduced this passage last week as it deals with this subject of the second coming of Jesus Christ. In our study this last year through the book of Revelation, uh, we've seen how Jesus Christ is the worthy lamb who takes the scroll, which is the title deed to the earth. He takes that from the hand of the Father in heaven and begins to unseal the scroll in order to take back that which the usurper 
has ruled. And, and as he breaks the seals, he unleashes various judgments. Seal by seal, the scroll is unrolled and seven different judgments are decreed. Out of the seventh seal judgment comes seven more judgments described as the trumpet judgments. In more rapid fire succession, out of the trumpet judgment comes seven more judgments called the bowl judgments, which really summarize the end time wrath of God that's unleashed in the world. And it ushers in the second coming of Jesus Christ who comes to establish his kingdom upon the earth at the end of the tribulation period. Now, all of that is laid out for us in the previous chapters. And so following the seventh bold judgment, after all of those judgments have ended, it's time for Christ to return as king and set up his kingdom. And that's what's being described here in chapter 19 and on into chapter 20. We saw how there's much rejoicing in heaven in the first part of chapter 19. And what's all of the rejoicing about? Well, it's about the destruction of the world's evil system. God's judgment on evil, the coming of Christ, and all of the glory of his coming kingdom. This is the moment that human history has been waiting for. This is the moment that all of heaven has been anticipating. And so I didn't really dig into the specifics of this passage itself last week, but I sort of uh, approached the subject of the second coming of Christ in a general sense as we considered what the Bible has to say about the second coming of Christ. And so I emphasize that this doctrine of the second coming is something that's very practical. And the first thing that I mentioned to you was this, as believers, we ought to eagerly anticipate the return of Jesus Christ. This is something to be met with eager anticipation. It's something that we ought to look forward to more than anything else. The coming of Christ, this is the blessed hope of the church. And so there's been a lot of anticipation that's been building up until this point throughout the book of Revelation. And all of this anticipation kind of reaches a crescendo in the first part of chapter 19 as heaven bursts forth into praise. And so I mentioned to you that there are at least four reasons why we should eagerly anticipate the coming of Christ, and here are those reasons. The first reason is that Bible prophecy establishes the second coming of Jesus Christ. This is something that is frequently mentioned by both the prophets of the Old Testament as well as the writers of the New Testament. For every one prophecy in the Old Testament that deals with the first advent of the Lord Jesus Christ, there are eight prophecies that deal with his second advent. And so this is something that the Word of God uh, emphasizes over and over again. And not only does Bible prophecy establish the return of Jesus Christ, but secondly, uh, Christ's own promise assures us of his return. At least 21 separate times in the gospel accounts, Jesus talks about his second coming in very descriptive terms. And so he promised that he would return. And if he doesn't return, then that would make him a liar. And we know that our Lord is no liar. So Bible prophecy establishes it. Christ's own promise assures us of his return. And then third, uh, God's plan demands that Christ return. What's the plan of God? Well, that his Christ exercise dominion over all the earth. That Jesus Christ regains that dominion which Adam forfeited through his own sin and disobedience. And the plan of God demands that the Messiah 
rule and reign over an everlasting kingdom and rule from the throne of his father David. And that's the plan. And then one final reason why we should anticipate the return of Christ is a very practical reason. Uh, Christian productivity requires it. Did you know that for you to live a productive Christian life and to be effective and fruitful in terms of ministry and service, you need to know something about the second coming of Jesus Christ. There's a sense in which the return of Christ sort of uh, creates within us a sense of urgency when it comes to the mission of God in this world. It's what should motivate us to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. It's what should motivate us to go to those hard-to-reach people in hard-to-reach places and proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God and to preach the gospel. And so we don't know when that time is. We don't know when Christ is coming for his church in rapture. And so we had better make the most of the opportunity to be on mission while we have that opportunity. So this is something to be eagerly anticipated. Now, looking at this particular passage itself and uh, the details of the passage, notice the second thing. It's what I'm calling the glorious appearance of Christ's return. Because that's what's being described here in these verses that we've read. The glorious appearing of Jesus Christ, who in his second coming will destroy evil once and for all and then establish his kingdom upon the earth. This passage is describing that future event where at his second coming, Christ the King, the armies of heaven, return to earth to defeat the Antichrist in an event referred to as the Battle of Armageddon. Now, I know you're familiar with that term, Armageddon. Uh, you're perhaps more familiar with that term because it's been a term often associated with apocalyptic horror movies and those kinds of things. Now, oftentimes, you'll hear uh, individuals in the media refer to Armageddon, uh, some kind of economic collapse or some kind of major meltdown. They'll refer to that as Armageddon. It's a word that we associate with the end of the world. Well, did you know that the Bible only uses that term, Armageddon, one time? And you'll find that in Revelation chapter 16. And the word Armageddon, is, it translates a Greek noun that really comes from two Hebrew words. The first word meaning mount, and then megiddo meaning slaughter. Thus, Armageddon means mount of slaughter. Megiddo is a very real place located in northern Israel. It's some 55 miles to the north of Jerusalem, 19 miles from Nazareth. I read where in 1799, Napoleon stood at Megiddo there before the Battle of Acre when he was battling the Ottoman Turks. And looking out over that vast plain at Megiddo or the Valley of Jezreel, Napoleon said all of the armies of the world could maneuver their forces on this vast plain. He said, there's no place in the world more suited for war than this. It's the most natural battleground on the whole earth. And throughout the centuries, there have been a number of battles that have been fought there in the Valley of Jezreel or at Megiddo. But according to Bible prophecy, it's here one day that the armies of the world under the influence of Satan and the Antichrist will one day assemble against the nation of Israel. However those armies will be in for a major shock because Jesus Christ and the armies of heaven will suddenly burst onto the scene and this passage of scripture says that he's going to put an end to the madness of men once and for all. 
And all of that's being described in vivid detail here in this passage. And notice how Jesus will conquer. He conquers simply by appearing. He conquers simply by means of his appearance, by showing up. And here in verse 11, John sees heaven opened up and there is the king sitting astride a white horse. And interestingly enough, this vision of Christ descending to earth on a white horse, this passage never identifies the rider as Jesus by name as such, but instead what John does is that he paints a picture with his words. And so he makes it clear that he's portraying our great king in all of his glory and all of his splendor. And how does he do this? Well, notice a couple of things here in the text. First of all, notice the names by which he is designated. There are at least four titles which are given to the returning Lord from verse 11 all the way through verse 16. The first title is seen there in verse number 11. John says, I saw heaven opened up, and behold, a white horse. That white horse is a symbol of victory. Uh, This would have been a symbol that would have been very familiar with that first century audience to whom John is writing, because oftentimes, uh, Rome's emperors or Roman generals, when they would return from some type of military conquest in which they had been successful, they would parade through the streets of Rome riding the back of a white stallion. So the image here is that of a victorious, conquering king who's come to take over. And notice this first title that he's given there in verse number 11. John says the one sitting on this horse is called Faithful and True. And as such, it is in righteousness that he judges and makes war. He's faithful, he's true, that's who he is. And that's not something that can always be said of me or you, is it? Why? Because, well, sin renders us unfaithful. There's falsehood and impurity in my heart. Even the best of man's leaders are prone to get the situation wrong. And I think we're reminded of that oftentimes through our political processes. We often put our hopes in some type of political leader only to be sadly disappointed by that leader. Why? Because that leader's not perfectly faithful or perfectly true. Our leaders disappoint us from time to time. Why? We're finite, imperfect beings. But folks, that can't be said of Jesus Christ because here is one who is faithful. Here is one who is true. I mean, even the very best of Israel's leaders, you go throughout the Old Testament and you consider, uh, for example, Abraham, who's the father of the Jews, one whom the Bible describes as being the friend of God. And yet we read in Genesis that there was weakness in Abraham's life Out of his own fear and insecurity, he lied. Or what about Moses, the great lawgiver that he was? As influential and successful as a leader that he was, Moses at times got ahead of himself, got ahead of God, took matters into his own hands. David, he's a man after God's own heart, and yet the Bible says that David committed adultery and even had a man killed. So Abraham, Moses, David, here's the very best of Israel's leaders who were still fallen and imperfect men. And in many ways, they were types and shadows of the coming Messiah, though they were not the Savior themselves. Who is the Savior? John tells us he's the one who's faithful and true. And the fact that Christ is faithful and true, this ought to be a comforting truth to you as a believer. 
That word faithful is a word that means worthy of belief, someone who's worthy of your trust. It reminds us that he's faithful to his promises and Jesus will vindicate the faith of all of those who trust in him. Did you know there will never be a time when he cannot be trusted? There will never be a time when he must not be followed. He's faithful. Let me ask you a question. Has he proven faithful in your life time and time and time again? And aren't you grateful that his faithfulness to you does not depend upon your faithfulness to him? That's his grace. There have been times I've failed him big time and I've made a mess of things, but thank God that he's the faithful one. And not only is he faithful, but John says he is true. There is no falsehood, no error, no untruth about him. He's one who is perfect in truth. So that first title, uh, Jesus is faithful and Jesus is true. Now a second designation, you find it in verse 12, which says that he has a name written that no one knows but himself. You say, well, tell us what that is. (laughs) Well, I can't because it's a name that only he knows. And so perhaps this points us to the Lord's deity. Uh, This points us to his transcendence and the fact that there are certain aspects of God which remain mysterious to us. And what we do know about God, we know only because he's chosen to reveal those things to us, but he's not chosen to reveal everything to us. I'm often amazed by these folks who from time to time They go through situations and circumstances, and I've heard people make this statement, well, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God a question or two. Oh, really? You are. You're going to enlighten him with your wisdom. You're going to ask him a a thing or two. What What if he asks you some questions like he did Job, questions that you can't answer? What do you think it's going to be like when finite beings like us stand before the infinite one who's the creator of the universe. We're going to learn some things that we don't know. In fact, I believe that all of, throughout all of eternity, we're going to be learning wonderful truth about the God who saved us and calls us his own. And so this fact, uh, th- this truth ought to motivate me to simply worship and obey the Lord. The fact that he has this name written that no one knows but himself. And then notice there's a third title mentioned in verse 13. Uh, The name by which he is called is the word of God. It means he's the living revelation of God. He's the authority behind the universe. He's the one who's upholding all things by his sovereign word of power. It's the same word that John uses in the first couple of verses uh, in his gospel account where he says in the beginning was the word The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And so it translates the Greek word logos, which is a word that means reason or explanation. You think about our English words, logic or logical. Three centuries before the time of the Apostle John, that term logos had been a very significant concept among Greek philosophers. And they used that term to sort of refer to this uncreated divine mind that gives meaning and order to the universe. And so logos, this is the term that those philosophers called the the fundamental principle behind the way that the universe functioned. Now, they didn't know who he is. 
They didn't know what that principle was. They simply referred to it as logos. Well, the apostle John comes along and he uses that word and says, let me tell you about the logos. The logos was made flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the word made man. He's the word of God incarnate. He's the rationale behind the universe. He's the rationale behind life and your existence and your life will not make sense apart from him. Our universe doesn't make sense apart from him and his wisdom. You look around at the world, it's the wisdom of God. We owe our existence to the wisdom of God. Y'all been following the news the last couple of weeks and you know, have you seen those pictures from the James Webb telescope? Uh, the, the media's been talking a lot about it. Our president, I think he released the first picture from this telescope. It's, it's the deepest picture that we've ever been able to take of outer space. And so this particular telescope zooms in on one particular part of our universe. And in that picture, there are just innumerable galaxies, which individually, those galaxies are made up of billions of stars. And the detail of this picture from this telescope is amazing. Uh, they've been able to zoom in on Jupiter and see detail uh, about the planet Jupiter that, that before we didn't know. It's an amazing thing. And yet the wisdom of man looks around at his world and looks at the universe and the wisdom of man says all of this just happened by chance. The result of just some mere explosion, all of this order out of chaos, man says it just happened. That's foolishness. You want to know who the wisdom is behind it? The logos of God. The word made flesh. Jesus Christ, the very one who's upholding all things by his sovereign word of power. If it weren't for his word, everything would cease to be. But he's the one who's holding it all together. And you feel like your life is falling apart at the seams? Remember something. Jesus Christ is the logos of God who holds it all together. Don't abandon hope. Don't think that your life is falling apart at the seams. Commit your way unto the Lord, and he will bring it to pass. Why? Because he's faithful and true. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. John says that he's the word of God. And then one-fourth designation is found down in verse number 16. Notice John says he's king of kings and lord of lords. In other words, there's no king who occupies a higher throne. There's no lord who exercises a greater lordship. All of the kings and all of the lords of men are under him and therefore subject to him. And the Bible says that the time is fast approaching when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So these are the names by which he is designated. Now, notice secondly, the ways in which he is described. This glorious appearing of Jesus Christ, we learn something about his titles. We learn something about the ways in which John describes him. You go back through the verses, notice to begin with what's said about his eyes. Verse 12 says that he has eyes like a flame of fire. That's an awesome description, isn't it? Same thing said about him back in chapter 1, verse 14. It's also emphasized to the church at Thyatira in chapter 2, verse 18. And the fact that he has eyes like a flame of fire, this means he has perfect knowledge and he sees every situation with a perfect piercing clarity. 
And I don't have that ability and neither do you. You say, well, I just call things the way I see it. Well, may I remind you, you don't always see things accurately. But that can't be said of Jesus because he has eyes like a flame of fire. He has perfect knowledge. That's why he's able to render righteous judgment upon sin. He sees it for what it is. He looks upon the heart, and as one who has an all-seeing gaze, there are no hidden or secret areas of our lives which are off limits to him. Hebrews 4.12 says that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, is a discerner of the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. That's his eyes. It speaks of his omniscient knowledge. And then secondly, notice what's said about his head. John also sees in verse 12 that on his head are many diadems. And that word diadems, this is a transliteration of a Greek term uh, that referred to the special crown that was worn by a ruler. And notice that it's a plural term, meaning that he's become sovereign ruler over all the earth. There is no place outside of his jurisdiction, but it all belongs to him. This is what inspired Matthew Bridges to write that great hymn that we sing so often. Crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon his throne. Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns, all music but its own. Awake my soul to sing of him who died for thee and hail him as thy matchless king throughout eternity. Crown him with many crowns, the hymn writer says. That's what John sees here in this passage of Scripture. One person has said it this way, the many crowns that Jesus Christ will wear at his second advent are a fair exchange for the crown of thorns that he wore in his first advent. The first time that he came, how did man treat the Creator? By beating a crown of thorns into his brow out of our unbelief and rebellion, and yet this is the way that it had to be. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. It pleased the Lord to crush him as a sufficient payment and atonement for my sin. But listen, the next time that he comes, he's not wearing that crown of thorns that was beaten down into his brow. He's going to be wearing many diadems. He's coming not to take sides, but to take over as the King of kings and the Lord of lords that he is. You'll notice third, what's said about his robe. Verse 13 says he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Some have seen this as a reference to his sacrifice, the fact that he's coming as judge because he came the first time as savior. And yet, may I remind you that the full gospel says that the lamb who atones for our sin by means of his own shed blood, at his second coming, he's coming to avenge by shedding the blood of his enemies. And so the last glimpse that the world gets of Jesus is not the suffering servant, but the returning and mighty King of kings and Lord of lords. And so more than likely, the reference here is the blood of his enemies. It may, in fact, be an allusion to something that the prophet Isaiah wrote about in Isaiah chapter 63. When speaking of the coming Messiah, said, who is this who comes from Edom in crimson-stained garments? 
Or Bozrah, he who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. And then the Messiah speaks, it is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. And the prophet asks him the question, why is your apparel red and your garments like him who treads the winepress? And the Messiah answers, I've trodden the winepress alone and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger, trampled them in my wrath, their blood spattered on my garments and stained all of my apparel. So perhaps this is what John sees here. Maybe that's what's being referred to here. And notice the fact that Jesus is not coming alone. But John also sees that heaven's opened up and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, are following the king of kings on white horses. That's me and you, friend. If you're a believer in Christ, you say, I don't like to ride horses. I'm scared of those things. You know what? You better get used to it because one day when the king says mount up, we're all going to be mounting up. What an awesome picture. A fourth description, notice what's said about his mouth. Verse 15 says that from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. The only weapon at the, the battle of Armageddon that the king has in his arsenal is his omnipotent word, and that's enough. Aren't you grateful for the sufficient word of God? God's word is enough. That ought to be a reminder to us in gospel ministry. What do we need? Someone says, well, we need this, and we need that, and we need to do this, and we need to do that. Let me tell you what we need. We need the word of the gospel. We need the sovereign word of our God. That's what we need. God said, my word will not return to me void, but it will accomplish the thing that I send it out to accomplish. You have confidence in the word of God? It's amazing what God has accomplished just by means of his word. God spoke a word and creation came into existence. The Lord Jesus spoke a word to a fig tree and it withered up and dried. He spoke a word to the howling winds and waves one time on the Sea of Galilee and he calmed the storm with just a simple word. He once stood at the graveside of a friend and he spoke the man's name and just by means of his word, the dead man came forth. He once spoke a word to a legion of demons that had possessed and harassed a man, and those demons left him. The man was set free. Even on the cross, he simply spoke a word, it is finished, and the Bible says that the veil of the temple was turned, torn in two from top to bottom, thereby opening up the way of access for all who come to God through faith in Jesus Christ. And at the end of all things, all it's going to take is for the king to simply speak a word and he's going to put an end to all evil and rebellion and destroy the forces of evil. Thank God for his word. So this is the glorious appearing of the Lord Jesus. Now, my time is gone. Let me leave you with this. One final thing that I want you to notice about this passage is the divine accomplishments of his return. We've seen the way that he's been described and the titles by which he's designated that's his glorious appearance. But what is it that his appearance is actually going to accomplish? What will Jesus do when he comes for a second time? I don't have time to get into all of this, but you can just jot these down. First of all, he's coming to fulfill his promise. Jesus promised that he would come again. And listen, he's going to be true to his word. He will indeed keep his promise. 
He's coming back. In fact, he's coming back to the very same spot where he ascended from. According to what the prophet Zechariah writes about in Zechariah chapter 14, God says, I'm going to gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. There at Armageddon, then the Lord himself will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. And on that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the prophet says, then the Lord my God will come and all his holy ones with him and the Lord will be king over all the earth. So he's coming back to fulfill his promise. Secondly, he's coming back to judge his enemies. And bear in mind, that's what's being described here from verse 17 through verse 21 in all of those vivid graphic details of what will happen at the battle of Armageddon. Jesus is coming back to judge his enemies. The unbelieving nations that refuse to repent and turn to him in faith. He's coming to destroy the Antichrist and the false prophet and all of the Antichrist forces. And ultimately, he's going to come back and bind the evil one, Satan himself. And that's something that's described on into chapter 20, and we'll look at that later on. So this is judgment that's being described. Jesus is coming to fulfill his promise. Jesus is coming to judge his enemies Jesus is coming third and finally to establish his kingdom. Isaiah 9 verse 7 says that Christ will be established on the throne of David and over his kingdom. This is the same news that the angel Gabriel announced to Mary in Luke chapter 1. Verse 31, behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Listen to this. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and ever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And it's going to be a wonderful kingdom, a matchless kingdom, a perfect kingdom in which righteousness will dwell. There's a very real sense in which Jesus is ruling and reigning now. But what he inaugurated with his first advent will be consummated with his second advent when the king of kings come, when he comes again. And that's got something, I've got something to look forward to, and you do too. Stand with me for prayer this morning. You know, just by way of application, let me just ask you three questions that you can ask yourself personally when confronted with this truth of the second coming of Jesus Christ, something that reminds you of your great accountability before God, something that reminds us of our responsibility as those who've placed their faith and trust in Jesus. And the first question I would ask you is this question, is this something that you're looking for? Are you looking for the Lord to return? Now, I know there's a lot of people that kind of weird us out when it comes to this kind of stuff, they try to set dates and oftentimes cause great embarrassment to believers. Jesus said, no man knows the day, no man knows the hour. We don't engage in that foolish speculation. That's not how he intends for us to live. But make no mistake about it, he does intend for believers to be on the lookout for his return. So is it something that you look for? A second question is this, 
Is it something that you long for? If you long for his return, you're going to be looking for his return. Is it something that you eagerly anticipate as you live out your days in a world that seems to be so upside down, inside out? Does it not bring you great encouragement and comfort to know that the king is coming and he's going to take this upside down world and he's going to turn it right side up and make every wrong right and do away with evil once and for all. I long for that day. I love his appearing. I'm eagerly waiting for my savior from heaven. One final question would be this question. Is this something that not only am I looking for, not only am I longing for, but is this something that I'm living for? Do you live for the return of Christ? Do you live to make much of the name of Jesus among your neighbors, your coworkers, the people in your family? Do you live to support gospel mission and ministry around the world and to serve God and to put your gifts and your talents and your resources to good use for the master's sake? Referring to his return and telling his servants how they ought to live in light of his return, here's what Jesus said in Luke chapter 19. He said, engage in business until I come. Don't be passive. Don't be lazy. But make the most of what you have and put it to use for the sake of the kingdom. And the last promise of the Bible, here it is. Jesus said, surely I'm coming quickly. Heads bowed and eyes closed. Are you ready for his return? If you don't know him as your savior, I urge you, repent of your sin, believe the gospel and be saved. Believe that Christ died for your sin on the cross and that he's the risen king and he's the returning king and surrender your life to him. You need to be baptized. In fact, we'd love to talk to you about that today. As we sing, you respond. You can come talk to one of our pastors here. We'd love to counsel with you and talk to you about baptism and what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Lord, thank you for your word. Take these truths. Bring great encouragement to our hearts. Incentive for our lives. For Christ's sake. Amen.